Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Is Dublin a welcoming city? Tourists and residents give mixed views in a special Tonight Show report. I haven't seen anything that made me feel unsafe. Can't come into town anymore. Like we're, we're heading home now shortly because certain hours of the day, no good coming in here. Plus, from safety concerns to soaring rents, our panel asks, is Dublin an attractive place to live? As the Taoiseach states that people should feel safe. Uh, the people should feel safe uh, walking at night uh, in our towns and cities. And we shouldn't be telling people that X area, Y area is dangerous and you shouldn't go there. That's totally the wrong approach from my point of view. And as wildfires rage in Europe, experts warn that Ireland will not meet its carbon targets. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. on from a brutal attack on Store Street which left an American tourist, Stephen Termini, with life-changing injuries. Safety in Dublin City has dominated the discourse. Nicole Gernon took to the streets of the capital to speak with residents, tourists and local government about how safe they really feel. Dublin shines best in the sun and today town was filled with tourists soaking up the atmosphere with many saying they feel it's a safe city. Quite safe. People are very helpful and gentle. It feels very comfortable and very pleasant to walk around. There's music, people are, you know, um, just uh, cheerful. Very first day today, but uh, it's a beautiful city and uh, um, yes, I think I can go out at night. We often visit, but we never see any hassle. Oh yeah, I feel pretty safe. Yeah, it's cool. It's very nice, but people are friendly and warm and you get a lot of help. I haven't seen anything that made me feel unsafe. Good, well, I hope it stays that way. Except the roads. The roads are pretty unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> but some of those who've been living here for a while have a different perspective. I can't come into town anymore. Like, we're, we're heading home now shortly because certain hours of the day, no good coming in here because you're getting jumped on, you're getting a hiding, just yeah, killing going on, you're getting robbed. I feel uneasy coming into town. I don't come often in, into town. It's just a scary. I won't come in here at night. Mainly for the immigrants, it's not safe. And when you walk on the streets, we be careful. When they have gangs of teenagers, me and my wife stopped to talk in Portuguese and crossing the streets. How do you think Dublin compares to Sao Paulo in terms of safety-wise? Uh, it's absolutely more dangerous yes. in São Paulo. Yeah. Yes, we have a different problems, more complicated. But I think in, if the situation keeps this in Dublin, maybe we'll be a similar. One thing they could all agree on is the lack of a visible guard of presence. Yeah, they are being more visible at night time. <laughs> at yeah. night time, yeah. And then sometimes yeah. when the town is busy during the day, I guess you'll see them around. But at the moment, I haven't encounter any of them yet. <laughs> Back home, in every corner, you'll have like security, even going or entering a mall, like you'll have a security around. Would you see many guards walking about? No. 
do you think is that part of the problem, maybe? Might say so, yeah, there should be more. You know, just someone patrol and just a little bit of a deterrent. Well, I haven't seen anybody since I came in this morning. Yeah, well, yeah. This is what, half 12, we're here. Yeah. I've never seen anything. Do you think that might help if you saw more guards about? What's the difference it's going to make? Well, yeah, they just passed them by him anyway. You know what I mean? Like, years ago, when we were growing up, if we were caught standing around in crowds, you were lightning. You're not allowed to stand around, and now they are, so... Walking around for more than three hours, we encountered none on the beat and just four cars driving by, at least one of which appeared to be responding to a specific incident. Last week's attack on American tourist Stephen Termini once again prompting calls for more Gardaí. I use my, my, own, my own focus group, which is my 88-year-old mother, and say, how would you feel safe in Talbot Street or walking down to the shops if I see a guard? That's when people will feel safe. Guard of visibility, guard of presence, Guardian on the beat is the biggest deterrent to crime. Yesterday's Joint Policing Committee promising there will be dozens more members of the force on the streets within the next two weeks. Councillor Ring welcoming this, saying while Dublin may not have the crime rate of other capitals, even one assault is one too many. Sometimes you feel it's not going the right way, so there's always that balance between good and bad, good and evil, and you just don't want the balance to tip in favour of the thugs, the drug dealers. We don't want to be coming down on Dublin all the time. It's a great city, I love it, and I want to see the best for it. And I think yesterday may be a new beginning, and there's a lot of joined up thinking between the city council, Dublin town, the services, the drug services, and of course, at the top you have the Gardaí. But I think what came across yesterday was, it's not just a local inner city, north inner city. You know, we have to look after the whole of the city. Nicole Gurnan reporting there. Well, the events of the past week have prompted more concerns and soul-searching about what's happening to Dublin and has led to a promise of extra Gardaí to make the city safer. But is there a broader problem of a city in decline and how do we solve it? Well, here to discuss this is MEP and Green Party member Kieran Cuff, editor with the Business Post, Daniel McConnell, Dublin City Councillor Janice Boylan and down the line for us tonight is comedian, presenter and Temple Bar resident Catherine Lynch. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, Janice, I'm going to come to you first, a born and bred Dubliner, inner city, uh, north inner city Dubliner at that and a city councillor. So you are really invested in the area and in the city. Um, and I, I think this sense of, of being safe or questions around our safety came into sharp focus coming out of the pandemic um, really, um, when people anecdotally reported a sense of unease in the city and we heard reports of more on-street and unprovoked attacks. Do you think what we've seen, you know, in the past week is a continuation of that trend? Or where do you think it's come from? Yeah, I do think it's a continuation of the trend after the pandemic. I mean, I, I felt safe enough walking around the streets two to three years ago. I used to come across from City Hall at half nine at the, in the evening, walk up to O'Connell Street, get the bus and get the, or the Lewis home. And I felt relatively safe back then, just pre-pandemic or post-pandemic then. Um, it, it, you have seen an increase in the unprovoked attacks, the criminality and the antisocial behaviour. So it has got worse. It oh. absolutely has. Why why do you think that is? I just think there's a number of reasons that it, it has got worse, but one of the main ones is that we just don't have the guards on the street to stop any of these attacks from happening or these gatherings from happening. I mean, you're seeing youths be uh, gathering around uh, different corners and then you're seeing elderly men who are there drinking and stuff like that. They're not being moved on, they're not being discouraged from being around, uh, standing around doing nothing all day or whatever they're doing, selling drugs and engaging in drugs. They're not being 
you know, stopped from doing that because there's no guard of presence on the streets. So that's one of the biggest issues that I am being told by my constituents and that I'm actually seeing myself. Yeah, because we are continually hearing about a lack of guard of presence, that the response has immediately been, you know, we'll get 21 Gardaí based in the city centre within the next um, couple of weeks. But beyond that, you know, when, when you're talking about crowds gathering and you're talking about open drug use there, that points to other problems. And, and where do you think that may stem from? You know, wh why do you think that's become um, such an issue that's in focus now that we haven't really, maybe it hasn't been as visible to us, we haven't talked about it as much before? I don't think people really noticed it. I think pre-pandemic people were just busy with their own lives, getting on and doing everything else. The pandemic kind of calmed everybody down. You were very aware of what was there and what wasn't there. And I think then when we came out of the pandemic and we opened up, we were all very eager to go back out onto the streets. We were all very eager to go back out doing our bits of shopping and stuff like that. And then you know, you're noticing these things more. So I think it's more visibility. It's it's always been like that. It's very it's very wrong to say that the, those levels weren't there before. They just have increased in numbers. Um, you know, and you have to take it back to to guard the visibility. I mean, I did a walk around on um, last Thursday in in the thoroughfare of the O'Connell Street um, with a reporter, and I didn't see one guard on the beat. And we were up and down Marlborough Street, Talbot Street, like the city centre. You'd, you'd you'd expect to see guards there, but we did have a reduction in guards. Like I mean, January this year we had six four one. June this year, we have 6.15. That's a 4% decrease, and that's just for the central area. OK, I want to bring Catherine Lynch in here. Uh, Catherine, we heard some views there in that report from your doorstep from Temple Bar. Um, you've lived there for many years, for 12 years, in fact. How do you think it's changed in the past decade? And and how, how do you see it as your home now? Do you find it to be the welcoming well, place that you liked so much or loved so much that you bought there? Yeah, well, you know, I still love Dublin and I think um, it's it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's the most bohemian city used to be. And what I think is uh, gone is the spirit of Dublin. And the, the spirit is gone because the government have stopped young people living in the city centre because they've raised the rents. They haven't put a cap on the rents. They have uh, caused a housing um, crisis where we have no bohemian person coming into the city. So we have either the rich or the poor. So we have no one in the middle at all. So the spirit itself is gone. Um, you know, when I moved to Dublin first in uh, the 90s, it, it was a place where you'd go for a walk and you'd just meet everyone and you'd go that evening to see your friend play guitar. Then you go back to their house because they all live there. And then you talk about, you know, what you need to change in society and who who needs a hand and who doesn't and so there's no actually um there's no actual uh, young people and there's no movement and every city needs a movement so we need to also bring back the night there's no bouncers on the doors normally the guards the the few guards that were even back then there's less now but it's not all the guards fault they went down and asked the bouncers how were things in temple bar how are things on wexford street how are things you know and they 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 had a, a system and there was a an infrastructure. So the whole infrastructure has gone out of the city because of absolute greed. And it's um, because of that infrastructure being gone, we're going to fall into all sorts of problems. We're going to have no protesters. You know, we've no one on the streets now talking about the environment. We've no one on the streets talking about the homeless. We've no one protesting. You know, people live in the city centres in France and they're out protesting all the time. I live in France sometimes and I walk into a protest daily. So I just think it's the spirit of the city uh, through greed that has just died and also 
Yeah. Hello, Catherine. Do you, do you plan? Do you plan on on staying in Temple Bar and continuing to live well, there when you talk about a city that's lost its spirit? You know, this year I'm very nomadic. I'm in France. I'm in Temple Bar, and I'm in Leitrim. And um, I never, for tw 23 years, I've lived in Dublin and more. I think. I never woke up in Dublin and thought, oh, my God, I want to be anywhere else in the world. The city owes me nothing. It's one of the most resilient cities in the world. It's got up off its knees through, you know, the depression, uh, the, you know, the downturn. It's uh, pushed itself through the Celtic tiger. But there just is a spirit now that needs to be reignited. And I'm very reluctant to stay there. I'm sick of Dublin. I think I'm going to be the last of the Bohemians, I call myself. And it's going to be very sad to not see uh, the next generation. I'm getting old now, well, older. And uh, I, the next generation need, needs to be in the city centre, fighting the causes. Like, we wouldn't have had the marriage referendum if we didn't have all the, the wonderful LGBTQ plus people in the bars talking it out, going to, you know, meetings. We, you know, we wouldn't have had a lot of, mm. of, of uh, rights we've, you know, or wrongs we've righted, you know. All right. OK, um, you know, when we're talking about soul searching and the spirit of the city, you know, Catherine points to something that people say they do really miss from Dublin now, um, that things have changed. And then, you know, we hear there in, in, in Nicole's report, tourist people arriving in are very much, no, everything seems okay to me. Now, I'm sure they were just the, the people that she, she spoke to for the main seem to have that view. But for residents in the city, they feel very differently, Danny. They certainly do. And someone who I've, you know, worked on Talbot Street for nine years, I live in Glasnevin. I, tra I travel through town every day to go to work. It's a kip. It's an absolute kip. You walk, you go through streets, you cycle through streets, there's broken glass, there's rubbish all over the place, there's open drug dealing, open drug taking. Um, there's no visible sign of bins being collected. There's bins strewn all over the place. That, that point around no, no guard of visible presence, like I worked in the Indo, right beside Store Street Garda Station. Like you would rarely see like the, the patrols or, or the, the Gardaí just out on patrol, walking up and down. I, I worked in New Orleans. I worked on Bourbon Street, like party central, and you would see a military-like presence. Has that always been the issue in Dublin city centre and, and off our main thoroughfare, which are very busy spots, which yeah. are now being described as areas you want to, wouldn't want to be alone uh, around at night? You go to Paris, you go to London, you go to Berlin, you will see significant police presences at night time where there's a lot of tourists because they want people to feel safe and they kind of minimise the potential for unrest or or bad uh, bad behaviour. Like, you, it's really sad to see because Dublin has a lot to see and we saw it transformed after the financial crash. There was a rebirth of, you know, nightlife in Dublin. It, it obviously took a big hit during COVID-19 and like, but like the council have allowed between various bad decisions or underfunding or whatever it is, like the, the streets are manky and filthy. That's one area. But the but the the the, the guard or the lack of guard presence, you know, combined with that, combined with the high levels of rent, we were it's in this sort of perfect storm where like it's not a thriving city at the moment. It's a, it's a city in a lot of pain at the moment. Yeah, uh, just to speak to that, talking about the streetscape and if you're seeing overflowing bins and rubbish everywhere and broken glasses, Danny's talking about. And look, we've done items on this show before. They've always got an awful lot of attraction because a lot, a lot of uh, people agree with you, Danny. A lot of people agree with that sentiment that it does. It feels like a, a neglected city right now, Kieran Cuff. What would you say to that from what you, your view as an MEP and someone who's seen life um, in other big cities around Europe and how they're doing things and, and what you see to be happening in our capital? Well, I think the buck has to stop with someone. And in most other cities, it does. 
Uh, there's generally a directly, directly elected mayor and a local authority that has real powers on waste, on housing, on health and on policing. I don't know who's in charge of policing in Dublin City. Uh, I know they're not elected. And while there is policing committees, really, there's no great power given to the councillors to take action. Well, uh, I suppose we problem. have the assistant guard, the commissioner, who's over policing in the metropolitan area. Yeah, um, and we Angela have a policing Willis, who, authority. Who came out and but, spoke we've a, to that. but we've a lot of plans that are gathering dust. I went looking for the, um, the divisional uh, policing plan. The last one I could find was from 2019. Uh, have any of the implementations been carried out? I don't know. And I think our policing is more reactive than proactive. I went along Talbot Street today. Yeah, there was two guards walking the beat. And I'm sure there will be for the next three weeks. But then it'll fade away until the next crime uh, significant headline uh, comes out of Talbot Street. So I think we need a long-term strategy to improve the policing. But in terms of the city itself, I moved into Dublin's inner city 30 years ago. The population has actually doubled over those 30 years. It's 130,000, it used to be 65,000. But what has happened with the pandemic is a huge amount of the office workers have left the city centre. And the city centre, it has tourists there, it has residents who've been there all along, but there is an emptiness there. And I think we should be converting a lot of these empty offices into the, the homes that we so desperately need in town. You know, it's a good point, and uh, it's, it's a point that Catherine point, uh, said as well, that it's a very unaffordable city. So it's only people, you know, who can afford to pay those extremely high rents who can live there now. And then we have, you know, the exodus of many office workers as well, um, leaving uh, a city without a, tr a thriving, um, I suppose, work work life and then students and, and artists and others mixing in with everyone else to create that, that city we hope for. Do you think, can you see where there could be changes, Janice, to, to bring the city back to its glory, if you like? Yeah, well, we have to get a hold of the dereliction as well. I mean, there's, there's massive dereliction in the city uh, at the moment, like where you have dilapidated buildings left, run down to, to, to nothing. Uh, you have open sh uh, shop fronts that aren't used. Whose fault is that? Well, I mean, I suppose it's 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 an economics fault. We're in the middle of a, a cost of living crisis now as well. You probably have sure some the buildings. The economy is booming. Yeah, no, but you have you have some people who have who have had to move out because rates and stuff like that. Like I have some friends of mine who started businesses pre-COVID and um, COVID knocked them knocked mm. them down. They it shut them down because like their business was like hairdressing or beauty or stuff like that. So you have all of those units that are lying uh, empty. You have der uh, rampant dereliction. The litter problem is huge. It's absolutely yeah. massive in the in the city as well. You've got illegal dumping as well. Like I mean prolific illegal dumping. And you're a city councillor. Absolutely. So what's the City Council doing about it? In fairness to the City Council staff, the staff are on hand every single time I pick the phone up to them to ask them to move a, 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 a dumped rubbish or if a street has been strewn by the seagulls from pulling the bags out and stuff like is that. Is that reactive rather they than are, this, it is, this proactive? That, and that's what, what Kieran said. About. And it is reactive, unfortunately. It is reactive. But it, it is it is the way it is. It's the, it's the sign of the times. It's what we're living in. The, everything that we do now is a reaction to a problem without having the solutions or the, 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 uh, the I suppose, the way to fix it. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it sounds like we just don't have a strategy. There is no ground plan. What Kieran talked about again, mm. who's in charge? 
Uh, yeah. do, does there need to be an overhaul there? Are there are there plans around that at all? Because that's again a conversation that we seem to be having uh, having had an awful number, a uh, lot lot of times around. Well, I was greatly welcomed. and more power to councils. I mean, I welcome the decision of Limerick over the government today to grant a directly elected mayor to Limerick. Mm. I'd like to see it in Dublin mm -hmm. because I'd like to see someone with that sort of executive power mm -hmm. who is elected who can actually be accountable and held accountable for this. But I would put it back on Janice and her fellow councillors. Mm -hmm. They have voted repeatedly to cut their property tax by up to 15%, starving at their own council for the very resources that they needed to clean the streets and deal with the homeless problem. Populist parties have taken populist moves because they think it'll get them votes. They should be ashamed of themselves for doing that. And I would actually, any councillor who comes near my door uh, looking for my vote next year, articulating an argument for a 15% cut will not get, get a very swift response from me. Janice. So, yeah, he's right. We, uh, my party took the position to reduce the, the, the local property tax by 15%. But up until this year, 20% of that local property tax was ring-fenced and used for different councils. That changed this year and we thought, OK, we're getting 100% funding. When we got the 100% funding, government cut their, supp their supply of the funding to us. So it didn't make anything better. It didn't make anything better. Having the 100% property tax, local property tax, didn't make anything better for us because when the funding came from Dublin, from central uh, government, they had cut it to match what we what we usually got. We usually got the 80%. Why? So, why did they do that? I mean, the, the whys could be that as long as the Liffey, I mean, it's 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 the, the policies that they're, they're implementing or, or lack of policies that they want to implement. I have not got a clue why they would not want to fund this city to be running as, as best as it can be. I mean, it's it's not being run properly at the moment. And I was on the um, the Citizens' Assembly for the directly elected mayor, and I think we absolutely do need a directly elected mayor in, in Dublin because that person then becomes responsible for all of those things. Yeah, Catherine, is that something you, um, yes. you'd favour? And we, we talk again about funding being a big issue when you look at uh, litter-strewn streets and uh, a lack yeah. of resources in the city centre. Would you pay more for your property tax, for example? Definitely. Well, I, I have a property in the south of France and I pay property tax and I pay water tax and I pay another tax. Um, it's uh, um, uh, another tax anyway. So there's three taxes. And when you get up in the morning in, in Nice, the place has been scrubbed clean. There's a, a market there that changes from a market into a restaurant, in, you know, into a restaurant area. And in the evening, then it's a it's a late night market, and it's in connection with the Maori, which is the mayor. The mayor is given such reverence in 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 France and the cities. He's really, really got clout, and. Um, we have to pay. It's a thousand euros a year for a small little studio. I have a pied-a-terre, which I think roughly translates into you couldn't swing a cat. But uh, <laughs> the um, yeah, so I have, um, I do pay and I love paying my taxes and I love paying my water tax because we get good water and it's environmentally checked and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think for a really generous uh, nation, we're scrimping in the wrong places. We give to the charities. The charities need to be looked at because the charities are taking everything into the office and they're, it's all admin and nothing is getting to the okay. people. So if we could transfer some of what that charity money, the charity money we give uh, into actual the right places, if I put a, I know we all need to give to charity, but it's not getting to the charities. Oh, you know. but all right, we've been I, hearing I mean, on I, that. I think there is still deep-seated disadvantage in parts of Dublin North, Dublin's north inner city. Uh, and I think both Una Mullally and um, Fintan O'Toole have written about this in, in the last uh, few days. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I think we need to target early years education. We need to get everybody working together. Uh, because I think there's a lot of silos out there, whether it be uh, in early years education or in policing or in what the local authority is doing. So a more coordinated approach is is required. The policing authority is starting to do that, uh, but we do need to have a plan, implement that plan, look at the results and see, see what's happening. I mean, a very simple example, good statistics on crime are impossible to come by. Mm-hmm. In most Is that because other it, we, we see a lot of unreported crime uh, it's, with, it's with both some unreported, of these unprovoked but the, attacks? The, the stats that the Angarda Shikana produce, they're not worth the paper they're written, they're printed on. Uh, you know, it's impossible to make year-to-year comparisons. They're organised by Garda Division, not by neighbourhood or by district. So I can't, in the 30 years I've been an elected representative, I can't make head or tail of the trends and what's happening in particular locations. Okay. We need that data. All right, OK, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Janice Boyle and to Catherine Lynch. Plenty more on the way after the break. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Earlier today, the Climate Change Advisory Council published its annual review in which it criticised the Irish government for the slow pace at which it's implementing climate policy and stated that we are not on track to meet carbon budget targets unless drastic action is taken. MEP for the Green Party, Kieran Cuff, and editor of the Business Post, Danny McConnell, have stayed on with me. And joining them is uh, the climate editor with the Sunday Times, Joe Linehan. Joe, you're very welcome along to the programme Um, We won't meet climate targets for 2025 or 2030 unless we take urgent action to reduce emissions more rapidly. Now, we keep hearing that, you know, we have these emission targets in place, but them being in place versus implementing them and, and reaching them are two very different things, aren't they? Two totally different things. And, you know, there's been great targets, you know, set, but as you say, implementing it is completely different. And I think today is really a call to action. You know, how can we accelerate things? I think there's been some great work done over the last few weeks. We saw the nature restoration law go through in the EU. We saw the national hydrogen strategy come through, which was widely praised. So there is stuff happening, but we need to accelerate it. And we need to support people in that acceleration. You know, we, we talk a lot about a just transition. Making the transition is not going to be the same for everyone. So we need to make sure everyone in society is supported to do so. Yeah, um, the council is calling on government to address uncertainty on how emissions will be reduced. Is that part of the problem 
that the communication is not there about really what we need to do in order to reach these targets? I think so. And I think, you know, everyone is getting such mixed messages. We're getting, you know, absolutely berated every day with everything that's wrong and what a disaster we're in, you know, and people like myself in the media highlighting the problems. Then you've got the government saying, no, we've got targets, everything's going to be fine. And actually, we just need to get back to basics. Where do we need to be? What do we need to get there? Who needs to be supported in making that transition? We need to just start right away. Okay, positive measures, Karen. Do you think they are plentiful in this country or do we still have to really up up a gear and, and, and really, you know, um, try to escalate what we're already doing? I mean, we talk about things like, you know, offshore wind energy and other things like that, but really, do we need to fast track all of these things? Oh, we, we absolutely need to up our game. I, I think good foundations are being laid at the moment, uh, but it takes a long time to turn the ship around, if you don't mind me mixing my metaphors. Ultimately, we have to change the way we do energy, the way we do transport, the way we do construction, and the way we do agriculture. And in each of those issues, there are, um, there are challenges ahead. Uh, I think at a European level, a lot of amazing stuff is happening. We have the European Green Deal, and we have something called the Fit for 55 package, which is about 20 different laws that will help us make these changes in renewable energy, in energy efficiency, the nature restoration law. But it takes time for those high level laws to trickle down to Ireland. But I think here in Ireland, there are a lot of positives, positives happening. A mm. uh, huge amount of solar installations, huge amount of retrofits. Uh, you can now sell your electricity back to the grid. All of these things help. But then things like the rail review tell us we need to invest in rail. But that doesn't happen overnight. It yeah. takes several years. So I think it's agonizing slow when you look forward. But if you look behind you, we've done an incredible amount in the last five years. The argument being we've come an awful long way because we have to make up for an awful lot, Danny. But like, are these targets even realistic I, I, for our country? It, it, it's very hard to see how the ramp up of delivery will happen at a time, I suppose, when you've got a a pretty pissed off electorate anyway when it comes to, you know, kind of increased taxation. You've got, uh, an, like, you've uh, a farming or agricultural sector who think Eamon Ryan is the bet noir and hate him because he's trying to bring forward all these things. He's, he's lambasted in the dove by the rural TDs all the time. Um, and you see, I suppose we're heading into election season. This is going to tell an awful lot. Is you know, like there have been discussions around increasing income tax or, or motor tax as a way of, you know, do you disincentivise motor transport? I just don't see the political appetite to see these things over yeah, the line. Yeah, like interestingly, like in one of its recommendations published today, motor tax should be redesigned to to increase year on year to promote energy efficient vehicles. Are they the sort of recommendations you're talking about that just won't wash politically? It's, it's penalising parking in city centres. It, it's it's increased tolls. It's increased you know motor tax. Um, like we are a stubbornly resistant country to change. I mean, like you look at any major road in Dublin at rush hour traffic, both either in the morning or in the evening time, it's single occupancy in a lot of instances. We don't do this sort of carpooling that a lot of other European cities do. We don't have the public transport network even in Dublin, to kind of to kind of convince people to get them out of the car and get them onto, onto, the, onto the bus or onto the train. Yeah, I, I think we're all agreed that we have to improve public transport. We need to lower fares. What I think we need at the moment, though, is a much stronger whole government approach. Whenever a report comes out or there's some extreme weather, it's often left to the Greens to speak out on say, the issue the uh, and it. say what needs to happen. So, so I'd like it the next time we see a United Nations report, I would like to see the Thonister or the Taoiseach talk clearly 
and communicate clearly about what needs to happen because I don't think it should be left to Eamon Ryan or Roderick O'Gorman or Oshin well, Can you Can Catherine you genuinely Martin. see a Fianna Gael or a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach or Tónis turning around and, and embracing the idea of reducing the national hurt? That's just simply not going to happen. Well, I, I think we have to look at the consequences of the levels of pollution in our rivers and on our coast. And I, I don't know about you, but I want uh, to have wells where the water is safe to drink. I want to have seawater that is clean and sparkling Mm -hmm. rather than having smelly algae growing on it because we've, we've overstocked certain farms. But we do have to bring people with us. We have to bring farmers with us. We have to bring commuters with us. Uh, and I think ultimately we have to have the entire government say, look, we're agreed on this approach and this is where we need to go in year one, year two and year three. Joe, speaking to that, it sounds like, you know, what, what Kieran is saying is like, you know, the Greens certainly are politically willing, but the, may, perhaps the challenge is within government then, rather than with the opposition. Do you think from, you know, from an electorate point of view, from the public's point of view, that they see sort of mixed messages coming from government? Well, today, they, this is a problem here. I mean, today the Taunus just said, you know, the era of denial is over. I think they really got a land today because, you know, it's great to say we're, we're going to do this and that, but today the evidence is there that we're probably not going to make those targets. Uh, I we think heard a lot of that talk at COP26, <laughs> if you remember, when Micheál Martin was over there and, you know, sp spoke on a global stage about what, what was needed from we, every country on this planet. We did, but I thought what was really interesting today was the, was, was the combination of that and then Leo Fragger talking about how he's going to implement more energy supports this winter and there is a connection between the two. We need to be secure in our energy. We're not right now because we're reliant on fossil fuels. So for consumers, it's about making that connection and saying, listen, we need to transition to clean energy because it will make us secure. It will make your bills cheaper. Like at the moment, those connections aren't being drawn. On one side, you have switched an electric car or the motor tax is going up and then the other side, it's saying, look, we like I know your bills are crazy, sorry. There's a connection between the two and we need to make the case for consumers this transition is going to be a bit of a, a tough one to take. There are going to be challenges, but when we get there, the future is going to be cheaper, cleaner, better for everyone. It's a big thing here about cash incentives, really, to get people to change. Yeah, I think a lot of the you know the the schemes or the proposals that the part that the government have brought forward, driven by the Green Party, without question you know, still require people to dig very deep into their pockets, be the retrofitting or be the, the changing of the electric car. If this is going to be transformative, what you need to do is the government may take the hit initially. Like, don't have people kind of investing or having to cough up thirty thousand euro, forty thousand euro to you know to change their windows or to get the the heat pump or to kind of insulate their homes. The one stop shop we're going through it. Our, we've gone through it ourselves. It's a nightmare process, bureaucratic nightmare to kind of look at the one stop shop. It needs to be much more simple or much more. It needs to be much more straightforward. Um, and I definitely think for that leap to happen, the government needs to take the hit up front and allow people to kind of play catch-up. Yeah, the other thing is, and you mentioned there about this new transport, I think the rail map that is sort of set what is needed around the country, and, and people will be shouting at the TV saying, it's all very well saying we need to change behaviour and we need to get out of the car and we need to do all of that. But it's very hard to do that in this country. And we simply do not have the transport infrastructure. It, it often is in the short term. Look, I think you need the long-term vision. You look at a country like Denmark and they set out their roadmap and their infrastructure map, their rail map, uh, 70 years ago, and they're still working to, to finish it off. Uh, I'm not saying that we have to wait 70 years. Uh, well, but I wouldn't I, be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in the short term, we, we have to make it easier. I think the, the lower fares... 20% reduction, 50% for young people. That made a huge difference. I saw it in my kids. Instead of jumping into a car to go to Hoth, uh, they were jumping on the dart because the fares had come right down. Mm. So things like that can be transformative. 
cheaper public transport. Vienna, 365 euro for a year to use public transport. I think we need that kind of buy-in. And there's never been a better time because uh, we have a cash surplus we, at we, the moment. We're still missing, though, emission targets from, you know, a couple of the, the, the key departments here. No, so it's we, not like the government doesn't have its ducks in a row on this one. No, no, it doesn't. And people have gone back to uh, the office, so they're commuting longer distances and the transport emissions have come up. But then the sales of SUVs have risen dramatically as well. I think we should ban the, the ads for SUVs. Uh, I heard somebody say, the other day you can't ban advertising we banned it for cigarettes SUVs are even more dangerous for the planet when you look at the, the the footage we see on our TV screens at the moment we need to think outside of the box as to what's needed and we can't go on with business as usual pretending oh we're grand and buying a bigger car than uh, our parents would have dreamt of I think the biggest I mean, problem... I mean, is there, is there an argument for this? Banning SUV, uh, banning SUV ads, taking these uh, Listen, sort of we're, drastic steps to get people to change their behaviour. I don't think that that's is, drastic. That is... <laughs> that is, is so it drastic, Joe? I think we're, we're missing the point here. Ireland has so much going for it, but one of the issues that we come up against time and time again is planning. No one is willing to make the plans now and follow it through from government to government. We need someone to commit. Okay, they mightn't be in office when, when the ribbon is cut, unfortunately, but we need someone to start planning now so that the benefits are felt in 10 years. Look at our, our transport system in Dublin. It is crazy, but a fabulous plan came out today for what can be achieved with the rail. So who's actually going to take the reins and maybe not get the credit for it in, t in 20 years, but it'll be there for future generations. You're saying that's for politicians, look. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Kieran Cuff, uh, Danny McConnell and Joe Linhan for joining me. You're very welcome back. Today, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly announced that couples will be able to avail of one publicly funded IVF cycle, provided they meet a certain set of criteria. Well, speaking today, the minister outlined how the establishment of several regional fertility hubs around the country will benefit those seeking to avail of IVF. We think that they'll be able to help and, and fully resolve issues, fertility issues, for about 50 to 70% of people. We know that about one in six people in Ireland are affected by fertility issues. And for those who can't be supported or, or resolved through the regional hubs, then they can be referred on for IVF. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Roshan O'Loughlin and CEO of the Child Equality Network, Renee von Medin. You're both very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Roshan, I'd like to come to you first as a GP. Give us your initial thoughts on publicly funded IVF. Um, it's something that people have been crying out for for an awfully long time in this country. Do you see it as this uh, important first step that the minister was saying repeatedly today? Yeah, thanks so much, Claire. I think it's um, a very exciting day in fertility healthcare um, with the announcement today of the rollout of publicly funded assisted human reproduction in Ireland for the first time. Um, even though the eligibility criteria are quite strict, I think it's a very important first step. And um, we should be looking at this in a, in a very positive way, I think, as GPs. Um, the service will enable us to uh, refer people to the fertility hubs and hopefully have a publicly funded uh, fertility services if needed. 
about now because the criteria is something that's come in for um, a bit of criticism, um, specifically because it is seen as being quite strict in parts. Is this on a par with other countries? Maybe take us through some of the um, the criteria that people will have to adhere to if they were able, if they wanted to avail of IVF. Yeah, so the first one is age. So women have to be under the age of 41 and men have to be under the age of 60. Um, and I guess part of the reasoning behind this is that egg and sperm quality does decline as women and men age. Um, the second eligibility criteria is BMI and the BMI must be between 18.5 and 30. And again, uh, the main reasoning behind this is that IVF success rates decline in more obese women. Um, and the third eligibility criteria is that the couple must be together uh, for a year. Yep. So the, the criteria are quite strict. And, and what's the reasoning behind that, the couple being together for a year before they can embark on this publicly funded IVF, for example? I don't know if I can directly answer that one, Claire, um, but I would assume it's just that I suppose the couple would show that they're in a loving relationship and that they're keen to bring a child into the household. Yeah, so there are sort of social conditions around this as well as um, the clinical um, conditions that you must uh, ad adhere to um, on this one. But um, tell me about the people that you are seeing, Roshan, coming in for fertility treatment. And um, from your point of view, will that mean that many of those people you are seeing will fall into these categories and will be able to avail of free IVF for the very first time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one in six couples in Ireland uh, do experience fertility problems. And um, unfortunately, up to this time, IVF in Ireland has been a luxury item. Um, it is very expensive. Often couples will require multiple rounds of IVF. Even though the eligibility criteria is quite strict, mm. it is definitely a positive step and it's definitely progression. Um, hopefully next year with more allocation of funding and with the proposed um, uh, pr the proposed um, advanced um, assisted human reproductive um, centre in Cork, this will enable more people to avail of assisted human reproduction services. Yeah, and Minister Donnelly was, you know, keen to say that this is a first step. I want to bring um, Renee von Mending in here because, from your point of view, Renee, um, how do you see this? You're, you're CEO of Equality for Children, and that was a group that was set up. Um, in order to secure the rights of LGBTQ uh, plus parents and their children. So do you feel let down by this announcement today in that you won't fall under the criteria? Is that right under this plan that's been announced by yeah. government? And I think that's really important to highlight because that hasn't really been covered so much today in what I've been reading and, and listening to. 100% um, of the LGBTQ plus community are excluded and tell us why. Um, so under the proposed uh, criteria, um, one of the main ones is those needing donor eggs or sperm to conceive will be excluded. So that includes heterosexual couples, same-sex couples and single people. Um, so, you know, from, from our point of view at Equality for Children, we work closely with Irish Gay Dads, LGBT Ireland. We campaign for equality for LGBTQ plus families and their children. Um, we have seen in the past where our families have been let down in terms of legislation, where we've been handed pieces of legislation 
that have a very strict criteria and some people may benefit, but a huge proportion of people don't. And that's what we've seen today. We've seen, yes, absolutely. It's a very welcome step in the right direction. It's amazing for the people that it will uh, benefit. Um, that, that clip we had earlier, Minister Donnelly saying 50 to 70%, I don't believe that's an accurate representation of who it will actually um, help. You know, today I've had lots of people contacting me on social media. One person who contacted me will benefit under the current criteria. Everybody else is excluded on one or more counts. Um, if I look at my own situation, uh, my wife and I have uh, two children and I'm pregnant with a third. We would be excluded because we're a same-sex couple and we need donor sperm. We'd be excluded because we already have a child and we'd be excluded because we've already paid for more than one privately funded IVF cycle. So that would, that would count you out and many others like you yeah. out. And automatically, you will always, in, in your instance, um, Renee, you will always need uh, assisted human reproduction. Isn't that right? Just by the very nature of it. Um... 100%. 100% of LGBTQ plus couples need donor um, assistance in order to conceive. And what is the reasoning given that you were excluded? Have you been told why? There, I presume there... it's something that you've strongly lobbied for yeah. um, when this was, you know, working its way through legislation, through stages and all sorts of things about, uh, and there was a big push on this yeah. um, right across the country from many couples yeah. and many individuals who have been trying hard yeah. um, to conceive. There, there has been no reasoning given. Um, only that Minister Donnelly has said that it's a complex area and we need further regulation in order uh, to do so. That doesn't make sense. And I think my colleagues in LGBT Ireland put it very well. They said today's decision is very disappointing and there is no justification for this. There is no justification. We have the CFRA, we have a piece of legislation that deals with donor-assisted reproduction. Okay. Um, Roshan, just to bring you back in on this, um, do you believe, and as I said, we, we hear that this is just the start, um, have we a long way to go compared to other countries and, and, and services offered, say, by the likes of the NHS in Britain and what they're doing in other mm -hmm. European countries um, for couples who are trying to conceive? Yeah, we definitely have a long way to go um, in the NHS uh, public or sorry, publicly funded um, IVF has been available in the NHS for quite a number of years and uh, couples are entitled to one uh, free round of IVF. Um, so we definitely have work to do, but I think we have to still see today as a positive step and hopefully with more funding, they will be able to roll out um, assisted uh, reproductive treatment to more and more couples. Um, but I also think this is really important as it um, opens up the conversation around fertility and also kind of breaks down that um, barriers, I suppose, discussing fertility. Um, fertility is very much a taboo topic and there is big uh, stigma around fertility. And that's for me, the case, um, Roisin, when you talk about it being a taboo topic that people have opened up a lot about it, but you, you, you still feel there's a way to go there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I founded a company called the Fertility HQ and we did a survey a couple of months ago looking at attitudes to fertility. And we found that 20% of women st still felt uncomfortable talking about fertility. So this was a really interesting okay. finding. 
All right, so um, a way to go there um, in breaking down that stigma, um, a welcome first step, but others would say um, more to do in the area still. And we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to all our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night and take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.